A good number present this morning. We appreciate the presence of everyone. I hope you've got your Bible with you and encourage you to open to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll come to that text here in just a moment. I want to suggest to you that many Christians feel frustrated as they try to live the Christian life. They are frustrated because they find it in their minds that it's harder and more difficult to live right in a world that is so wrong and so contrary. Perhaps they're thinking that it's worse now than it's ever been. Perhaps they feel that my struggles are worse than what my parents and my grandparents and those before me faced. It's so hard to live right in a world that's so wrong. And so they raise the question, can it be done? Can we really do it? Can you really live the Christian life like God wants you to live in the present age? They're asking, is it even possible to live right in this world that is so contrary. We must begin with the concept that God tells us how to live right in a world that's so wrong. And Moses serves as a great example of that. And so I direct your attention to Hebrews chapter 11 as we read about the faith of Moses. And we're going to build our study around Hebrews chapter 11 beginning at verse 23 through verse 29. And so I encourage you to put a marker there or a finger there and we're going to come back time and again to Hebrews chapter 11. There the text says, By faith Moses when he was born was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith Moses when he became of age refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible." By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. That is the recording that the Hebrew writer gives of the life of Moses as an example of one who had faith. Here is an example of one who lived right in a world so wrong. So let's talk this morning about living right in a world that's so wrong. Can it be done? Is it possible? And I want to show you from this text that Moses was a man who lived right in a world that was so wrong. And our question is, how did he do it? The first thing I want to share with you is the fact that he never lost his faith in God. How on earth did Moses live right in a world that was so contrary? And the answer to that question is he never lost his faith in God. He never lost his faith in God. Now the verses before you are not all in sequence. But it does emphasize the ones that talk about his faith. For example, verse 24, by faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Verse 27, by faith he forsook Egypt. 
And notice verse 27 says, as seeing him who is invisible. Verse 28, by faith he kept the Passover, and by faith they passed through the Red Sea. How did Moses do it? He never lost his faith in God. I want to tell you that Moses believed in God. Evidence of that is found in the context at verse 6. Let's back up in Hebrews chapter 11 and notice verse 6. Where Moses is mentioned later as an example of faith, the text says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Moses believed that God was, and that he believed also that he was the rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So he had faith in God's existence. But he also maintained his faith throughout life. I see that in verse 6 as well, that he was one who had faith that God was the reward of those who diligently seek him. Look at verse 27. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, and he endured, notice the phrase at verse 27, as seeing him who is invisible. He never lost his faith in God. He believed there was a God. He believed in the existence of God. He believed what God said, and he maintained his faith throughout his life. I want to suggest to you that without faith, you can't live right. Without the kind of faith that we read about in Hebrews chapter 11, that believe there is a God, and furthermore believes that God is the reward of those who diligently seek Him, one cannot live right. Without faith, it's all the same as if there is no God. And without God, there is no moral code. If there is no God, there is no moral code. And if there is no moral code, then one cannot live right. Moses couldn't live right unless he held to a moral code that there is a God and God tells me what's right. But let's go further. I want to suggest to you that our faith is constantly challenged. If you have faith, your faith will be challenged. Moses had faith and his faith was challenged. Your faith will be challenged. You say, well, I have faith, and I don't think my faith is ever challenged. Oh, yes, your faith will be challenged. In fact, it is challenged by faithless society. Just like Moses lived in a world that was so wrong, you live in a world that is so wrong and so contrary to the will of God. We live in a faithless society. We live in a society that doesn't have the same kind of faith that there is a God, that He's real and His Word is true. And we are affected by our environment. We'll see more about that a little bit later. That we are affected by those that we are around. And so it has an impact and an influence upon us. So that it has pressure upon us. And our faith is challenged by a faithless society. But may I suggest that our faith is often challenged by television and movies. That is those from Hollywood which lean extremely to the left which includes a denial of the existence of God, includes a denial that the Word of God is inspired, is constantly challenging those who hold to this old fogey idea there is a God and there is a moral code. And so it is implanted in some of the television programs and many of the movies that downgrades the idea of anyone who holds to some kind of faith. They're ridiculous to have some kind of faith. You're extolled in your praise because you reject faith in God. Your faith is challenged. Your faith is constantly challenged by humanism, by paganism and the New Age movement, which is all around us and is infiltrated into the school systems as well. 
And some of the things we read and social media, etc. There is the influence and the tentacles of humanism and paganism and hedonism and the New Age movement. Your faith is being challenged. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 6. And what I want you to see in 1 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 6 is that our faith is challenged with the many temptations that we face. In fact, the text says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, that you are grieved by various trials. One translation says manifold, multifaceted trials. In other words, Satan is going to hit you from every angle and every side. When he hits you from one angle and it doesn't work, he's going to come from the opposite angle and see if that works. If that doesn't work, he tries even another angle to see if that works. We have many temptations and many trials, many manifold, various trials and temptations. Satan is hitting you from every angle. Your faith is going to be challenged. May I suggest to you because of that we need to be grounded in evidences. Sometimes when we have a study of evidences and we have a class or maybe we have a sermon or a preacher comes for a meeting and he preaches on evidence of the existence of God. You say, I already believe in God. I don't need that. I need something to encourage me. I need something to help me grow. I already believe there is a God. I already believe the Bible is the Word of God. But what I'm suggesting to you is if we're grounded in evidences, and the more we study about evidences, it strengthens our faith in God. If you're not familiar with evidences and you can't cite evidence of why you believe what you believe, you need to get yourself familiar with evidences for your faith. For example, we need to be familiar with the resurrection of Christ. Not only that he was raised from the dead, we need to be prepared to argue why we believe in the resurrection of Christ. We need to be arguing from the empty tomb. That was the argument made in Acts chapter 2, by the way. That Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost cited the empty tomb as evidence that indeed Jesus was bodily raised from the dead. The tomb is empty. How do you explain the empty tomb? We don't have time to develop all of that argument. But if you're not familiar with the empty tomb argument, get familiar with that because we need to be grounded in evidences so that we never lose our faith in God when we're challenged. We need to be familiar with the cosmological argument. That is the argument of the first cause. Let's go to the book of Psalms. This is made in the Old Testament. This argument is made also in the New Testament. Let's go to Psalm 19 and in verse 1. The text says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. The psalmist is making the cosmological argument. There is the fact that something exists means something always was. The very world demonstrates the handiwork of God. Let's go to the New Testament and see the same thing is argued in the book of Romans, if you will, chapter 1, and notice it, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. I can know there is a God. I am without excuse for faith in God when I look to the fact that God has created the world. How do I know he created the world? The fact that it exists tells me it was created by a person, a personality. The moral code, which all men admit there is a moral code, applies to personality. Thus, that argues for the fact there has always been a moral being. That did not come from matter. And we're just beginning to touch the hem of the garment for evidences. What I'm suggesting to you is get yourself familiar with arguments for the existence of God. And that strengthens your faith and that holds you strong in the light of all the challenges to your faith. 
Moses lived right in a world that was so wrong. How did he do it? He never lost his faith in God. But that's not all. Secondly, he never lost his faith in the precepts of God. Moses never lost his faith in the precepts of God. Look at verse 28. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. He not only had his faith in God, he had faith in the precepts of God. Moses believed in God's word and he kept it. That's what we just read at verse 28. He kept the Passover. In other words, God told him to keep the Passover. He kept the Passover. By faith, he kept the Passover. He not only believed there was a God, he believed the precepts of God as well. But I want to footnote and suggest to you there was a time when he didn't do that. In other words, that was not always consistent in his life. You remember in Numbers chapter 20 and in verse 12, God had told him to speak to the rock and he smote the rock. He didn't obey the precepts of God. He suffered a mighty severe consequence because of that. He was not allowed to enter into the promised land. And so there are times when we do not put our faith and our confidence in the, faith, in the precepts of God that we suffer a consequence. In fact, Numbers 20 and verse 12, God said, because you did not believe me. In other words, when he didn't have faith in the precept of God, God said, that's a lack of faith in me. Do you believe in the precepts of God I want to suggest to you that many today want to separate the law from the lawgiver. What do we mean by that? They want to focus on the man and not the plan. They want to separate God from his precepts and the Lord from his word and the personality of God from the proposition of God. How do they want to do that? They want to hold to the fact that I believe in God. I believe that he's real. I believe that he exists. But I'm not so interested in what his word says or the precepts or his plan. You often hear someone talk about, I want the man and not the plan. We need to preach the man and not the plan. In other words, I want to hear about God, but I don't want to hear about what he has to say. This is the old gospel doctrine distinction that's age old. It's gone around for a long, long time. That what I want to hold to is the gospel. I'm not interested in the doctrine. We call that practical liberalism. That says you follow the man Christ, but don't worry about his plan, the word. I believe in God, I believe in Christ, but I'm not interested in the word. I'm not interested in following the details of that. that that's some kind of, of uh, Phariseeism to follow after the, the precepts of the word. I don't want to do that. I'm interested in following after Christ. I believe in Christ, I believe in God. I want the man, I don't want the plan. I want to suggest to you that some people teach that doctrine. In other words, they formalize that and they talk about the core gospel. They talk about believing in the plan, the man, but not the plan. There are others who, and listen to this very carefully because this is more practical. There are others who cannot formulate that concept because they're not familiar with the concept. They just happen to live that concept. They don't know how to make the argument, but they live that concept. That I believe in Christ, I believe in God. I am a Christian, but I'm not interested in the precepts of God. I want to tell you that Moses lived right in a world so wrong because he never lost his faith in the precepts of God. We must follow after God's word. Let's turn in our Bibles to some very familiar text. Let's go to Philippians chapter 1 and notice it verse 27. Notice the emphasis not only in believing in God and saying, I, 
I hold to God and I love God, but I follow His Word. Look at verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, put your life in harmony with what the gospel says. Not just mentally acknowledging God, acknowledging Christ. Put your life in harmony with the gospel of Christ. Let's go to another text. Revelation chapter 22 and in verse 14. Blessed are they which do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and enter in through the gates into the city. Blessed are those who do what? Who hold to the man but not the plan. No, blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have right to the tree of life and enter in through the gates into the city. Let's go to the book of James chapter 1. And notice at verse 25, the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it. He being not a forgetful hearer of the word, of the work, uh, uh, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. That is, you look to the perfect law of liberty and you continue to do what it says. You accept the precepts of God. Moses, I want to tell you, lived right in a world so wrong. How did he do it? He never lost his faith in God. He never lost his faith in the precepts of God. And thirdly, I want to suggest to you that he watched the company that he kept. He watched the company that he kept. Notice at verse 24 now. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Here's what I want you to see. That he didn't even want to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now he was the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You remember as a child when he was saved by Pharaoh's daughter. And grew up in her household. And grew up as an Egyptian. But the text says when he became of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. How so? Well, the Egyptians were not known for their high quality of morals. That's an understatement. They were not known as the most moral of people. They were not known as the most purest of people. And so he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And he was willing to give up the pleasures of sin that was associated with that. He could have been called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He could have lived in the household and enjoyed all the pleasures of the household and furthermore enjoyed all the pleasures of sin we'll talk about in a moment. But he didn't even want to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He wanted to watch his association. And I want to tell you the Christian watches those with whom they associate as well. You want to live right in a world so wrong, be careful of your associates. Be careful who are your intimate friends. Be careful of those that have an influence upon you. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and in verse 33. I want to talk about the context and then I want to come back and talk about a broader application of this general principle. Let's look at verse 33. It says, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Here's a general principle. Evil company, association with evil, can have a corrupting influence on your good morals. Now, let's put it in its context. It's talking about false teachers in the context. Here were some who were teaching there was no resurrection. Now, these are perhaps good moral people just teaching there is no resurrection. 
No indication that these teachers are the kind that would drink and get drunk and, and uh, living in adultery and encouraging you to be an adulterer. They just are teaching there is no resurrection from the dead. You associate with that and you say, well, these are good people. I mean, they just happen to be wrong doctrinally is what they're wrong. But you associate with them and it corrupts your good morality. Because you're influenced by what they say and by what they think. Now let's take that general principle, and if it applies to these false teachers, how much more so someone, for example, who drinks, or someone who curses, or someone who doesn't have faith in God, or someone who doesn't have the same moral standard that you have, the influence they can have upon you. The Christian watches his association. Why does he do that? Because he recognizes this general principle of verse 33. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 1. The proverb writer writes from the vantage point of a father speaking to his son and warning him of the dangers of association. Notice what he said, my son, if sinners entice you, don't consent. In other words, they're going to invite you to be part of them. Come with us. In fact, that's what they say at verse 11. They say, come with us, let us lie and wait to shed blood. We've got some plans and here's what we're going to do. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like shield. Let us go down like uh, uh, and whole like those who go down to the pit. And let us find all kinds of precious possessions and fill our houses with spoil. In other words, there's benefit in going with us and being a part of us and doing what we do. So here's what you do. Look at verse 13, verse 14. Cast your lot among us. Don't be different, be one of the crowd. Let us have one purse. Notice verse 15, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path, for their, foot rent, their feet run to evil, and they, make shed, and they make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird. They're setting a trap for you. Don't do that. Watch your associations, watch who you associate with. What I want to suggest to you is the Christian cares about who and what influences him. The Christian is very careful. Like Moses, I don't want the household of Pharaoh influencing me, so I refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. I don't want any part of that. Now why is it that he cares about that? Because we become like those who are around us. That's a biblical principle. Let's go to Romans chapter 12. You say, I, 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 I don't believe that. I, I just don't believe that we become like those around us. I believe that I'm strong and I believe I can be faithful and I can associate with worldly people and I can associate with those who are ungodly and it doesn't have an impact on me. Let's look at Romans 12 and verse 2. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Yes, you can resist the world, but notice, be not conformed. That has to do with the pressure that the world puts upon us to shape and to mold us to be just like it. That was the argument of 1 Corinthians 15, by the way. We become like those around us. Notice Proverbs 22. This is the most fascinating proverb. Because it says, make no friendship with an angry man and with a furious man do not go. I've often made the point, he's not talking about a drunkard or an adulterer here, but a man who loses his temper all the time. Don't associate with him. Why? Lest you learn his ways. Psalm 106 says that's exactly what happened to Israel. Lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your soul. 
You associate with a person who loses their temper, you're going to be tempted to lose your temper too. You associate with one who lets their tongue roll, you're going to be tempted to do the very same kind of thing. We become like those that we are around. For years and years I've read statistics and quotations from, from police reports and from judges who've all said the same thing. The number one cause for juvenile delinquency is they get in the wrong crowd. We are influenced by those that are around us. Moses lived right in a world that was so wrong. How did he do it? He never lost his faith in God. He never lost his faith in the precepts of God. He watched the company that he kept, but I'll tell you something else he did. He realized the pleasures of sin were seasonal. He realized the pleasures of sin were seasonal. Look at verse 25. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Some translations word that the pleasures of sin for a season. So what am I learning from that? I'm learning that Moses knew that pleasures of sin indeed were passing. We see that at verse 25. You see, with, with the sin comes prestige. In the case of Moses, if he stayed in Egypt and wanted to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and live the life of an Egyptian, with that sin came prestige, perhaps no ridicule. Obviously, there would be wealth, there would be power. Some suggest perhaps he was an heir to the throne, and obviously fame in Egypt. But what he recognized is that wasn't worth it. That the pleasures of sin, it admits there is pleasure in sin. But it's passing pleasures, and it's only for a season. And I want to tell you that there are some Christians who are afraid of missing out. Sometimes we defend our children getting involved in things because I don't want my children to be left out in this world. And so consequently, we want to do what the world is doing. And we tell our children the Bible is so restrictive and, and there's so many rules and there's so many regulations and there's so many thou shalt not that, that I, I'm afraid my children are going to be left out. And I don't want them to miss out on what's going on in the world. So we want them to dress like the world. We want them to dress just like the world. We don't want them to look different. And we want our children to be able to talk like the world. And we want them to be able to smoke like the world. And we want them to drink like the world. And we want them to be able to dance like the world. And we want them to be able to watch filth like the world. I don't want my children to miss out. And then they're going to miss heaven just like the world. Moses was a man who tried to live right in a world that was so wrong. And what he recognized is the pleasures that are involved in sin are just for a season. A number of years ago, the Gallup poll gave this quotation. They said, churchgoers do not differ appreciably from non-churchgoers in matters of morality and ethical behavior. you agree with that? I think that's probably true. If you're thinking of churchgoers as being members of the church who live faithful, then it is incorrect. But generally across the board, those who are churchgoers, churchgoers do not differ appreciably from non-churchgoers in matters of morality and ethical 
behavior. How sad. In other words, churchgoers are involved in as much sin as non-churchgoers. Those who claim to be Christians, those who claim to be followers of God, are not any different than people who don't go to church and don't claim to believe in God. Paul Harvey once said, as the world becomes more churchy, the church becomes more worldly. I think he was right too. We must constantly live our lives in view of there's consequences that come with sin. And that's what Moses recognized. Let's go to James chapter 1. These are all simple passages. We know them well. Look at James 1 in verse 15. There are consequences that come with sin. That when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Separation from God. We must live our lives in view that there are consequences of sin. Romans 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life. That death is eternal separation from God. Damnation, hell. That's the wages. That's what sin pays. It's going to pay you for serving. And that's the payment you get. Look at John 8 and verse 24. Jesus said, if you die in your sin, where I go, you cannot come. That's verse 21. If you believe not that I'm he, verse 24, you shall die in your sin. But verse 21 said, if you die in your sin, where I go, you cannot come. You can't go to heaven. We must live our lives in view of the consequence of sin. Oh, I'm here to tell you that Moses lived right in a world so wrong. How did he do it? He never lost his faith in God. He never lost his faith in the precepts of God. He watched the company that he kept. He realized the pleasures of sin were seasonal. And last of all, I want to suggest to you that he maintained a proper sense of value. How did he do it? He maintained a proper sense of value. Look at verse 26. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Now what do I learn from that? I learned that Moses took the spiritual over the material. Moses chose the spiritual over the material. The wealth and the accumulation was great in Pharaoh's household. That was at his disposal. He could have had anything he wanted. He could have had all the wealth. Furthermore, he chose God's people and the spiritual instead. He chose to be with God's people Choosing the esteem, uh, the reproach of Christ, greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. In other words, he looked at all the treasures of Egypt. I can have all of that, but I'd rather be with God's people and live right and be among God's people and do what God wants rather than have all the treasures of Egypt. What about our sense of values? We need to recognize that the spiritual are the real riches. Let's go to a couple of passages again that you know well. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. Let's get ahead of ourselves to verse 9 and then we'll come back to verse 6. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. It's in the context of those who are craving more, wanting more, desiring to be rich. But verse 6 says, now godliness with contentment is great gain. What's more important than the riches and the treasures of the world is living godly, dedicated and devoted to God. Which is of more value to you? Moses had the right sense of value. 
Philippians 1, before we go to Matthew chapter 6, Philippians 1, without reading that entire context, is talking about for, to, for me to die is gain. To depart and be with Christ is far better. I could live in this life, but to die is gain for me to be with Christ. The spiritual is far more important. We need to get our priorities straight. Matthew 6 and verse 33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. That was in the context of materialism. Two aspects of materialism, by the way. We just came through the Sermon on the Mount. One aspect is one who's seeking more and more material things, and they're materially minded, need to seek first the kingdom of God. But really, verse 33 is in the context of those who are not seeking more and more, but they're worried about what they do have, or maybe what they don't have. That's a form of materialism. And he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. One writer said the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. Are you doing that? Have you put your eye on the goal and never taking your eye off of that goal? Let's look at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 14. For here have we no continuing city, but we seek one to come. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first. Is your eye on the goal? Setting your treasures toward heaven. Here we don't have an abiding city, but we seek one that's better. Set your affections on things that are above. Colossians chapter 3 and in verse 2. Perhaps you've heard the story of the young man that went off to his first year of college. And as he moved into the dorm, <clears throat> got settled in his dorm room, the first thing that he did was to get something and make the letter V, and he put it over the door. And the classmates that were there and those who were in the dorm come around and say, what does that mean? And he said, you'll see. Somebody else would say, I I've been meaning to ask, what's that V? You'll see, you'll see. That went on all year. He came back the next year, moved into a different dorm room, and he put a V over that door. You didn't tell us last year, tell us now, what does that mean? He said, you'll see. And the next year, and then finally his senior year, he did the same thing. You'll see. And the day they graduated, they understood what the V was for. He had set his mind and his goal from day one to be the valedictorian of the class. And he never took his eye off the goal. Are you setting an H over the door of your heart saying, that's my goal. And I don't want to take my eye off the goal. And when someone asks you what something means, they'll see, they'll understand in time because you never take your eye off the goal. Have you got your goal toward heaven? Moses lived right in a world that was so wrong and so contrary. How on earth did he do it? Can it be done? He never lost his faith in God. He never lost his faith in the precepts of God. He watched the company that he kept. He realized the, passing, the pleasures of sin were just passing and seasonal. And he maintained a proper sense of value. 
And that's how he lived right in a world that's so contrary and so wrong, and so can we. We can do the very same kind of thing. There may be one or more present that's not a Christian, that's not a child of God. Would you become one this morning? Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?